Hey everybody, just quick note, uh, this is the last panel that I recorded at Necronomicon from 2022. I recorded eight panels in total this year. Uh, I was hoping to have a few more, but I guess eight's probably not too shabby. Uh, there are other panels available on our SoundCloud page. There are playlists for 2022, 2019, 2017. Easiest place to find them is going to be there. They're in the feed, but good luck trying to find them uh you know from all those years ago but uh, i want to thank everybody for checking it out and we hope to see you in 2024 to the Great Cthulhu Campaigns panel. It's wonderful to see you all this morning. Um, thank you so much, all of you, for wearing masks. Thank you for your compassion and your consideration. If you don't have a mask, there are some over by your door. I am Lynn Hardy. I am the Associate Editor for Call of Cthulhu at Chaosium. You may know me from such campaigns as the updated Masculine Lapitech, Shadows of Atlantis, and the Children of Fear. Uh, I'm John Goodrich, and uh, I am the fourth name down on the Beyond, Beyond the Mountains of Madness campaign, and that's pretty much my credentials. However, I am also running uh, a campaign which involves the majority of what I consider the great campaigns of Ca Call of Cthulhu, so I will have opinions. <laughs> I'm Badger McInnes. Uh, I uh, am art director for uh, Stygian Fox. Um, Longtime book designer for them, and did some work for Chaosium. Some rule book called called Cthulhu Seventh Edition, I think. So, is that what it's called? I think so. Um, also, a longtime keeper. I've run the majority of the great campaigns that have been published over the years. Hi, I'm Oscar Rios, president of Golden Goblin Press, a licensee of Chaosium. I am the author of Ripples from Carcosa from Chaosium. Um, I uh, am the author of The Legacy of Ari Slurko from uh, Miskatonic River Press, which is actually going to be released by Golden Gamble Press. And I had the great honor of being three, well, two of the expanded scenarios and one of the rewritten scenarios for Horror on the Orient Express. Which I hope we get to talk about. Try and stop me. <laughs> <laughs> I have a pencil to stab you. I, I, I will behave. I will behave. Um, I'm uh, Mike Mason from Chaosium. Uh, I've, uh, I've worked on uh, Curse of Nineveh for Cubicle 7, uh, Master of Architect, the, uh, the updated version, um, and every other campaign we put out, apart from the uh, really, really early ones when I was only playing and not working on it. So, this is our illustrious panel. So, first question. What was the first Call of Cthulhu campaign you played or ran? Or have you not done either? And I'm going to start with Mike, and we will come back this way. The first one I played, I was a player in the uh, Masks of uh, Nilahatep, and um, there was two really bad things happened, very quick anecdotes. 
Uh, we all died horribly because we stole the glowing green rock, which we thought was magical and the cult really wanted. We learned that was a wrong thing to do and died horribly very quickly thereafter. Uh, but that was not before one of the players uh, one of the, who we had decided would be the repository for the law. They, they, they had all the tomes and they were the one that would lose all the sanity loss and the Cthulhu mythos and they would be the, you know, the learned one until they decided it would be really better if they just ran off with all of the player handouts and tomes for the entirety of the campaign to some remote island to you basically you know, learn their stuff. And so we were left stranded in the middle of the campaign with no clues. <laughs> oh. Before we continue further, should we add a just giant spoiler tag to this entire yes. seminar? I think what, what I will do is if as soon as someone mentions a campaign that you haven't played, stick it in your ears and very quietly, obviously, go la 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 because yes, this is possibly going to be quite spoiler-laden. Alright, well, Lynn will be happy about my answer. I have never played one of the great campaigns. Um, I, Get out. I, I haven't even written, I haven't even read them. And that's because I'm always a bridesmaid, never a bride. I'm always the keeper, I'm never a player. And I always hoped one day one of my friends would run one of these and I could play it so I didn't want to spoil it. It's been about 20 years of me <laughs> being an active Call of Cthulhu player, not one of those sort of bitches that ever launched a campaign. Although one is currently promising to do it this fall, we'll fucking see. Name and shame them. Name and shame them so they have no options. Um, John Candelino, if you do not run, masks of Marley Hotep. You're on the spot. Oscar, you just need better friends. No, I have great friends. <laughs> I just don't have great friends who are keepers. Uh, the first campaign that I ran was Day of the Beast, um, and despite some of the issues that I have with it, uh, we had a lot of fun, and the f it was during that campaign that I had my first great role-playing moment where it clicked and went, oh shit, this could be really awesome, and it was during a seance early on in the campaign, and <clears throat> apparently I had acted it out so well that it creeped the shit out of all of my players because there was complete silence in the room as I was impersonating, uh, uh, I think it was Paul Lamond. Um, and uh, it was after that moment, like, okay, I think I can actually pull this off. Um, I realized fairly early on that I was never going to be a player, so I bought all of the campaigns and I've read virtually all of them. It's a little more difficult now than it was when I started. Um, my first, uh, first of the great campaigns that I ran was a truncated version of Shadows of Yog sothoth in which I took my home campaign and my college campaign and combined them into a 13-person uh, adventure where they all went to relay and uh, got squished by Cthulhu. As one does. Um, now, up until I actually started working for Chaosium, I'd not actually played or technically run any of the great campaigns, um, because that's not how we used Call of Cthulhu. Call of Cthulhu, in the group I was part of, was the game that we played as a standalone between other campaigns for other systems. 
But that was actually quite handy when it came to updating Mastanai and Akatep because I could come at it with a fresh pair of eyes. I had no preconceptions as to what it was. I had no rose-tinted memories of how awesome it was. So that was quite handy. I've play-tested quite a few since then, none of which I think I can talk about. So there's some good fun things They're not out play, yet. But yes. For, forthcoming titles? Forthcoming titles. Can you give us hints? Well, well, one of them you can watch on the entirety of YouTube, although you've done this yet, Dead Within. <laughs> that, oh, was that? Yes, I forgot we recorded it live. Yeah. But the Dead Within, that is one. That was one. So, second question. Which Call of Cthulhu campaign is your favourite, John? Right now, um, I attempted to run Masks several years ago, uh, and it was, a, it was a, an interstitial. Uh, in between my D&D campaign, and that didn't work because you kind of have to keep all the, the, the clues in your head. Uh, I am now running masks, and I ha and we're in London, and I and the players are having a ball just with all of the stuff, uh, and it's spoiler time. Naturally, they went to London and went straight to Gavigan and showed him all of the cool stuff they got in New York. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's been fun. My favorite campaign by far has been Beyond the Mountains of Madness. Um, I've had some of the greatest role-playing moments I've witnessed yeah, um, at, at my table. Um, and not only that, it's because for me and, and for my players, it was the most Lovecraftian in feel and tone. There was this overriding sense of, of doom and inevitability once they actually got on the ship to travel to Antarctica, especially when they landed um, on that continent. Um, spoiler alert, uh, the, during the climax, um, once the players began to realize what they had discovered and what the tower meant and what bringing back the information about the City of the Elder Things and what they were doing, uh, bringing that information back to civilization could mean for the entire planet. They gathered around and started smashing and destroying every piece of evidence that they had found up to that point. We cannot smash, bring this stuff, smash back to uh, civilization. Um, and the ending was incredibly nihilistic. Uh, my players, in the end, uh, set up a cult, basically, where every once in a few months or so, they would bring back a new victim and feed their head to the great towers so that the world would not be destroyed. <laughs> now, I would like to say Ripples from Carcosa, but that would be me being a total jerk because I wrote it. Um, but it is available at the Chaosium booth if you want to stop by and pick that up. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to be, I'm not going to lean into me and be a jerk. So I'm going to say, of course, uh, you know, horror on the Orient Express. Um, and what I love most about that is that, you know, it's an international campaign. It travels through many countries. Um, it, it gives you a taste of all of those different cultures and places as it goes through. It's written by a multitude of amazing authors so you get to sample a whole bunch of different great styles um, you know it's grown and evolved um, so I mean I've, I've read the original 
and then I've of course read the new one, and it's amazing how it's it's grown up. Yeah, we'll um, come on to that later. Yeah. How good. And good. I have, and it, I have it, thoughts. About it's made that. me very envious that we don't have something similar in the United States yet. Yeah, I mean, I the one I possibly run it the most, and the one I've enjoyed running the most is Hawaiian Express. I've run it, I don't know, I don't know, I can't, lost well, count how many times I've run that now. Um, and uh, it's, it's, the, as a vehicle, it works really well, you know, it's a train, so it works very well. Uh, but um, it's, it's got, a, it, I like the diversity of locations, um, and I mean, the mass has got that too, but, but um, I know what, what, what the, the main difference between masks and, and Orient Express is one of them has a reoccurring villain that, that goes with you, basically. Masks doesn't necessarily have that. You can have that in masks, but it's not preset into the campaign. And I, I really like the villain in um, Orient Express. So um, you, as a, as a keeper, you get you get to ham it up with that particular villain. I find so that, maybe that's why I enjoy it more. But um, I, I guess. Yeah, horror and express, and, and as Oscar says, you know the uh, the original was just fantastic, and um, I, I like the new one too. Funnily enough, I think it could be argued that there's two main villains in Orient Express, and both are great for their own reasons. Now I do have a horror on the Orient Express anecdote because technically that was the only one that I ever did get to play, and that was because we went to a friend's house the night of the first night of the British lottery when that started. And we played a chapter of Horror on the Orient Express. So that was the only pop, one of the great campaigns I've played anymore at any point. For, which chapter? For, I can't remember which one it was, though. I mean, you know, it's, it's a lot of time. What country was it in? Um, <laughs> was it the dream one? No, we were definitely on the train. So I think it might have been Paris. Um, but, um, but I, I mean, it's what, 20 odd years since the UK lottery started, the National Lottery? <laughs> so, you know, memory's going. Um, for purely career reasons, my favourite will always have to be Master Niall Apatet. Um, <laughs> because that was my test piece, apparently, for getting the job at Chaosium. That I didn't realise at the time. So that I'll was your audition? A, that was my audition. So I, will you, I think you passed. <laughs> I think I did. <laughs> well, failed, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for those answers. Those were wonderful. Now we've mentioned your favourite campaigns, but I'm going to ask you a slightly different question now. What was the one that had the most influence on you? I mean, is it the same campaign? Is it a different campaign? Did a particular campaign influence the way that you played, that you ran, that you then went on to develop your own work? We'll start with you this time, Mike. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, uh, masks. Um... You know, I'd already, you know, I was already playing Call of the Loot uh, well before Masks came out, and uh, you know, I had Shadows of Grubs of Farm, I had Day of the Beast, uh, or Funky Funky Goth, as it was then known, um, and I'd read them, and I'd contemplated running them, and I just kept running into kind of brick walls with both of them, I just didn't feel that they were campaigns. Um, and then Masks came out, and I understood what the difference was. Uh, and the difference is very, very simple. One person effectively wrote the entirety of the plot of Masks, so it joins up really well and feels like one cohesive story, 
whereas the other two uh, precursors were run by a group, uh, written by a group of people who would, where their scenarios were then brought together and made into a campaign, um, and I think uh, less successfully um, because they are far more disjointed and they don't have a, a narrative campaign sense. I think Day of the Beast has more than, than Shadows, but um, I feel that um, they were kind of like almost test beds for this idea of a campaign, which was still a relatively new idea in role-playing. I mean, yeah, D&D, you got to go to Giants and that kind of thing, but they were, you know, separate modules that kind of just linked together. Um, this was the first time I felt that, you know, RPGs were telling a grander, wider story. Um, and I just think that Larry, work that out and, and, and set the template, which is why I think Masters is always held up as, you know, one of, if not the, certainly one of the best RPG campaigns ever written. And I think one of the reasons for that, and it's got very you know, numerous reasons why you can herald it that way, but one of the reasons is because it was the first one that got it right. That's my take. Oscar? Okay. Uh, again, I haven't read all of them, but when I was first starting to write, or trying to write, I basically went to eBay and bought every Cthulhu book I could possibly find, and I read as much as I can to learn how to structure a scenario. And there was one book called Cthulhu Classics that had the primordial version of uh, Yogg-Sothoth. And I'm like, you can run scenarios together as an interconnected campaign? And it was like, because I'd just been reading single scenarios, single scenarios. And if I would have seen a campaign book on on you know eBay, I wouldn't have bought it because I wasn't you know I wasn't there yet. And here it's kind of snuck in like the sour cream and a taco that you didn't order. And I'm like, what is this? And I'm like, this isn't bad. You can do this. So as I'm writing individual scenarios, I'm like, I really like this concept. I'd love to bring these characters back for something. I can, and it, it kind of awakened the entire concept that a Call of Cthulhu campaign was possible. Um, so I guess that that would have to be my answer. Thank you. Um, I would go back to Beyond the Mountains of Madness. Um, again, it it had that most it had the most Lovecraftian uh, vibe to it, and along with the moral quandary that the investigators at the end have to try to figure out, and there's nothing. I mean, the keeper can kind of maybe make suggestions, but you really should take a step back from that. They have to sit there and figure out for themselves what the hell are we gonna do in this situation? I mean, we'd be sending people to death, but we'd be serving the greater good by doing that and not allowing the, the world to be destroyed. What the fuck are we gonna do? And it was, it was those sorts of moments that influenced my writing uh, when I come up with my own scenarios. Like, to me, that's, one of the cores of a Lovecraftian uh, adventure is having that emotional reaction and of the of the reveal of how bad things are and what sort of horrible situation you're stuck in and what are we going to do to try to get out of it. It's not just killing the big bad at the end of you know the summoning. It's to, for the type of experiences that I've had with players, that to me is the most impactful and long lasting. And that's what I strive for with my writing. John? Uh, I'm going to betray brand loyalty here and say um, eternal lies. 
uh, when Eternal Lies came out, I sat down and I read it, and it was, I, it is very definitely a tribute and a, an honors masks and you know, a type. It is very much structured in a in the same fashion. You run around the world. You don't go to any of the same locations except I think Cairo, which is great. Um, but it also has a a nastiness to it and a way that. Um, the player characters are necessarily affected by that which is seeping into the universe. And I think I'm really looking forward to sort of getting my players where they live and having their characters start to degenerate and grow bits. A little, little, tiny, a little tiny bit of Cronenberg. Ah, very appropriate considering which panel was on before us this morning. <laughs> now, something that you just said there, Badger, um, that's sparked a question. So, do you think, panelists, that what makes a great campaign are those moral choices that the players are presented with? Or is there something else that helps make a campaign great? So, John, I'm going to start with you and go back down that way. Uh, I think a great campaign is like great literature. If it foreshadows and goes places you didn't think it was going to, but fits into that general uh, theme and those general ideas that it established. Um, the moral choice is not necessarily there. I mean, I don't think Masks presents us with um, uh, the choice that Beyond the Mountains of Madness or Ripples and Carcosa or uh, even Eternal Lies, which is the sacrifice of one of the PCs. But that's kind of neat, and unfortunately, um, in running them serially, I think that's going to lose some of its some of its kick. So I'll I'll have to noodle around with that. Knowing my players, they're going to shoot Starkweather early on in Mountains of Madness, and then, oh my look, God. At, then look at the face and go, "We should have saved him for this." <laughs> There were, there were several moments during my campaign run where my players just wanted to take him out and toss him over the ship. They hated that guy so much. I wrote his biography, and I am proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really dependent on the players that you have at your table. Some players don't want to have to stress out over moral quandaries. They just want to go on a grand adventure, and if that's what they want, then that's what you should run for them. Don't don't force that sort of moral situation on them if that's not what they're into, because they're just going to have a miserable time. That was my uh, So basically, what makes a great campaign great, and do you have to have that moral quandary? I think the moral quandary is, is great. I don't know if it works as well as a campaign as in shorter adventures, um, because you don't want them agonizing for weeks and weeks and weeks, and session after session after session. That becomes emotionally taxing. Um, for me, what makes a great campaign great is scope and scale. Um, you know, what's at stake? You know, how big is this sandbox? Um, you know, that's, you know, I, you, you want your players that after you finish the campaign, they're like, holy shit, we finished this fucking campaign. And they'll be talking about that over cocktails for the next 10 years. You know, they'll be, oh my god, I ran that, what did your players do? You know, that, that kind of sense of, of shared epic community. Um, like, on to you. Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think 
well, everyone said this, you know, spot on, really. They, they all, they, you know, there's no wrong answer here, but um, I think, I think quite right. I think, you know, moral quandaries work really well in one shots. They also work really well in campaigns, but you can't do it every week, as Oscar says. It just doesn't work. And there are, some, you know, I had a group, and I played uh, Beyond the Mountain of Madness, and it just did not work for them, that ending. They, they did everything they could to not face up to the, um, you know, the, the sacrificial kind of question to the extent that they were more than happy to let the world end because they just didn't want to do it. They, just, they didn't want to lose their characters. And they, they were very, <laughs> going home, you know, if I say the words, they were more used to playing Dungeons and Dragons, that their mindset was, we, you know, there's no way we're going to lose. You know, and we don't care the world ends because we still win. If we don't you get do. to live, none of the rest of you do. Exactly that. <laughs> that was their game. Obviously, you know, playing their game, I suppose. So that, that's fine. But it, it doesn't always work, even if the scenario asks you to do it. So again, it comes down to knowing your group. But for me, to answer the question on the, the other side, is um, I think it's about the, um, the ability to um, engage with a group of people to tell this. I want to use the word grand story, but I, I, I think I mean slightly differently to Oscar when I'm talking about scale. I'm talking about the scale of their character arcs. It, to me, a campaign can be world-spanning, it can be set in Providence and never leave Providence and still be epic in scale. And the epicness is what I mean is the character investment, the player investment in the campaign. Um, because what the, the main difference between all the benefits of a one-shot and all the benefits of a campaign is with a campaign, it's just deeper because you're doing it for a longer time. So the investment is deeper and stronger and therefore the payoff can be that much more powerful, whatever the scope or skeleton of the campaign is. And for me, that's the, that's the heart of a great campaign because you brought into it, everyone's brought into it. So whenever something shocking happens or there's a revelation, everyone just takes that <clears throat> gasp of air because it's suddenly the scales have fallen from their eyes and now they see the bigger picture of whatever it may be and that's just gold dust moments in role playing because they're the you know as Oscar said they're the bits you they're the bits you talk about over cocktails you know, 10, 20 years later. I just want to uh, piggyback a point on what you uh, something you said. I have a, I have a it's not a it's a monograph campaign that I wrote, but again, when he talks about scale, it doesn't have to be the size. Uh, for this, the scale was time. Um, in the in uh, the Ravenar sagas, the first adventure, the characters are young uh, Viking warriors trying to earn their spurs, trying to earn a spot on a ship. The part two of that takes place like eight years later, when they're established, known, you know reputable warriors well respected in their communities and the next campaign takes place the next the final act takes place and again another eight years later when they're all like captains of their own ships living in different towns and then they've come together so they've gone from being the young bloods to being you know the main guys to being the respected elders with their own ships you know they go from being a crew trying to get on a boat to a flotilla of guys with their own boats and that's the sense of scale yeah. but the, 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 the geographic scale is very limited because I mean it's the dark ages they don't well they're Vikings they do travel but you, you understand what I'm saying mm -hmm. so. so I think the answer basically the takeaway message from that is that for a really great campaign what you need is player engagement so that they are invested, that they come together to tell that story together, 
and that you know they have those epic moments on whatever scale world spanning small town time that allows great character development great role playing moments and stories that you are going to be telling for decades later yeah so on to possibly the meatiest question that i have for you because i know badger has thoughts and various other people have thoughts on this so how have Call of Cthulhu campaigns changed since that very first one, which was Shadows of the Old Sothoth, which was published 40 years ago now, in 1982? Who's younger than that campaign? Raise your hand. <laughs> Young Cubs. Young Cubs. John. Um, I actually have a, a copy of the original printing of uh, Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth, and one of the big changes is, for example, they no longer use that slightly dark red print, which was uh, extremely difficult to achieve because they had to send it to the printer. The printer had to clean off um, all of the all of their printing um, so that they could get this this dark red uh, uh, color that Chaosium wanted. Um, it was it was better than that. Was because the handouts are brown, printed on brown, which is great for reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Also true. Um, but um, I think campaigns have grown and blossomed, um, and like literature, I'm going to use literature a lot because that's kind of what I do. Um, so, Shadows of Young Sothoth was several scenarios sort of jammed together, and we end with Cthulhu Rising uh, from Relay, and we've moved on to other ideas where you know the the ideas build, the ideas build through time. There's there's been at least one campaign that is that where each scenario involves different people because it's all in different time periods. And that's great and that's fascinating. I wouldn't want to run all of my campaigns that way, but that would be neat to do uh, once or twice. <clears throat> and also, the, the what, are, what, what are we looking to achieve? All campaigns don't have to be, we have to save the world, although they have to have some stakes. And the variation on stakes um, is is very interesting and as as is, and, and varies quite widely and I, I, I enjoy that very much. Roger. Uh I'm going to use horror and the Orient Express as my example. Um, I have been lucky enough to run both the first and the second edition, so I can make direct comparisons of both experiences and. Uh, I think the second edition is a great example of what you can do if you want to go back and try to revise a campaign and add more to it. Um, the flashback scenarios uh, alone are worth the price of admission. Oscar, I tip my, my hat to you. Um, my players had some of the most fun during the second run of that campaign with the flashback scenarios of uh, Reign of Terror during the uh, French Revolution. Lovely. I know, I know. That was, that was Mark Morrison and Penelope Love. Um, yeah, those were great. Uh, it, they went back and reorganized it, but it, despite all the changes that they did to that campaign, they did not get away from the core of it, of, of being able to travel to all these different countries and the conspiracy that's been going on for centuries um, and that bastard vampire, Fenelik. 
right, I've got two points, and I'll try and be concise. Uh, one is uh, railroady. The early campaigns are so railroady. Uh, the indie press revolution, the indie game revolution um, of the late '90s revolutionized gameplay. Players became more sophisticated. They wanted options. They wanted sandboxes. I was reading through before the campaign the the opening scenario for Yogg-Sothoth in its original form, and it says everybody's got to join the Hermetic Order of the Silver Twilight. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what? I mean, <laughs> what if you're poor? What if you're black? What if you're playing a woman? And I could hear Lisa Paddle, my editor, I could read her red ink. I'm thinking, if I turn this in, she would eviscerate me. Um, and then I, I'm looking, I'm like, oh, Arab cultists. I'm like, ooh. And that's the second point. Social responsibility and inclusivity. Um, they are not written where we are or we're striving to be as a culture. They are steeped in Lovecraftian traditions. And for people of color, for women, for the LGBT community, you know what I mean by Lovecraftian traditions. They are not friendly. Uh, and they're not written in a way that even... Can, they weren't written to be offensive, but they were just thoughtlessly offensive to many groups. And I think that any campaign worth its with the salt being written now is taking a look at the way society has evolved and the way history was recorded to be more fair and more inclusive to other races, other cultures, other locations. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll stop. I can go on for this well, forever, but I'm going to stop. I'll let Mike talk more about this in a second, but that was something that I know Mike was keen on when Masks was revised, because I actually sat down and went through it, and in the original version there were 12 women out of 120 NPCs, and nine of them were there purely to be sacrificed. <laughs> so that changed, funnily enough, so Mike. Yeah, I mean, what Oscar says, yeah, he's going to disagree, because he's absolutely spot on. Um, and, um, you know, I'm just going to be blunt. Some old stuff, and I'm talking the old campaigns, even some of the single, single, single story scenarios, which is bad. You know, I look at them now, and I can see, you know, I see the DNA of the game, and, and you know, they're you know, they're fine for their time in a sense, um, but they just don't stand up today. They, they're not credible. The scenarios are poorly thought through. They're inconceivable. They're basically just big fights. There's no mystery. The mystery is how do you get to the fight. There's no mystery how you get out of the fight because you're going to die. Um, and so I, have, I, you know, I, I, I respect them in terms of their place in history, and that you know they are the shoulders that we build, you know, game gameplay on from there on. You know, we've got to, we've got to start somewhere, but they have their place and it's in history. It is on my gaming table today. Um, and so, as Lynn says, you know, what what we continue to strive to do is to. Um, do better, you know, better in gameplay, better in narrative design, better in ensuring the keeper who's running this is best prepared. And, you know, that might mean ensuring that in a campaign like Masks, the internal navigation, as in, you know, just cluing the keeper in really visually easily about how do they, how do they get from scene A to scene W, yeah? What, 
how do they, how do they handle that work? What's the most important piece of information in the scene where there's a hundred pieces of information, but what's the one you really need to make sure the players get? All that kind of narrative logistical guidance, which just didn't exist in old campaigns, is we spent hours and days and days putting that in because, you know, and also we spend hours and days trying to coach and work with writers to get them to think about putting it in when they're first writing it. Because obviously it makes a massive difference if you use that technique when you write it, rather than having kind of like shoehorned in after the writing process, which is obviously what we sometimes have to do. Um, so I think campaigns as a whole um, have come on leaps and bounds, you know, um, and um, that's what we strive to do. So I think they are far, far better. I mean, you know, just to build on Lynn's masks thing, just but from a different angle, I, you know, I'm going through the England chapter, I'm revising the England chapter. I always thought the England chapter was one of the best chapters in the original masks. A lot going on, some really cool characters, some cool locations, which I know personally because I live there. Um, and so I always liked that one. I'm working through it and I'm, but I'm looking at it analytically at the clue progression as a massive, massive plot that no one seems to have ever noticed. Because apparently, spoilers, um, when you get to China, the, 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 you know, the court is building a massive rocket and all the parts are coming from Britain. Now you tell me in the original massive NAFTA where not many, it's, just, it's mentioned there's, there's, a, there's a factory in Derbyshire where these parts are coming from. That's literally the sentence, that's the entirety of the plot. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're, if you're looking at your players kind of find that one clue and then say, we're off to Derbyshire to get you up, there is nothing in the campaign, there's nothing in the campaign, which to me is a slightly large plot hole, thank you. And um, so that cue, I now need to write <laughs> what's happening in Derbyshire, how does it connect with the entirety of the campaign? So for me, you know, it, it's trying to build on what is already good, but make it better, add more value, make it more playable and easier to run. That's, that's what I think you know, all of us spend our time doing uh, in terms of when we're putting books together and campaigns and writing. And even when we're not doing any of that and we're simply picking it up to run it as a keeper, when you're going through it making your notes, that's what you're doing. You're, you're putting your own, you know, your own marker on it, your own internal navigation, your own little stars to say, this is the bit I want to focus on. Yeah? And that, that's, you know, that's all about improving and building and using these things as tools. Awesome. So, uh, Mike, Mike reminded me of something he said about how we were fixing the broken ones. I was I had the honor of fixing one of the what was called by critics the most broken scenario in Horror on the Orient Express repossession. Rail it was a railroad on the Orient Express. It was a miniature railroad on the railroad. There was like and then you get an eye ripped out and there's no way to avoid this and uh, and I'm like I'm like reading I'm like wow this is this is terrible. I have so, many, so much work to do that I can fix this. And then I see it's, it's written by Richard Watts. Now, Richard Watts is my mentor. Um, I emailed him as a fanboy before I started writing. I'm like, hey, I'm writing a King in Yellow scenario about, and you wrote Tattered Dermalion, my favorite you know, King in Yellow. Would you look at it? And Richard Watts read it and wrote me four paragraphs on everything good about it and four pages on everything that was wrong with it and how to fix it. And I'm like, this guy has given me the Rosetta Stone to become a Cthulhu author. 
and now I'm going to fix his worst <laughs> scenario. Um, and I said, I, I, I can't do it without his, without his permission. And they said, we asked him, you're the only guy he trusts to fix it. Aww. And I was like, to this day, when I address him, I still call him, you know, my master. So, in the bardic sense, not anything weird. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I think what we can say is that, as Mike said, the early campaigns were flawed. They were very much of their time. They were very true to the original source material, not necessarily in a good way. There were quite often massive intuitive leaps that the GMs and the players were expected to make. But we've learned, we've built on that, and now we are trying to diversify, we're trying to make them more inclusive, we're trying to make them easier and more straightforward for the keepers and the players to navigate. So that support is there. Because obviously with a lot of these great campaigns, there's all, you know, the traditional supporters who, who did it back in the day when they were first out, you know. But also, we now have younger players coming through. And gaming has changed a lot. They are used to more support. So it's, it's good that we are attempting to make sure that it's there. Because if they have a good experience, then they're going to come back and want to do more. And hopefully, they may end up writing the next generation of great campaigns. Right, I think it's time for questions and answers. Unless the panellists have any last minute burning things they need to get off their chests. We always do, but oh, yeah. listen to us. <laughs> we'll be here for weeks. <laughs> uh, something I, I did not mention is um, Impossible Landscapes from Arc Dream, which is a I have been waiting for that since the first issue, I am old, of uh, The Unspeakable Oath because it uses so many of those fantastic concepts and then just puts it in a blender and uh, you, you, you kind of jam your players in there too. It's just brilliant and strange. I want to have two quick comments. Uh, first, uh, I want to give a shout out to Tatters of the King, <clears throat> which I think is a very uh, underrated campaign. One of the great aspects of it is that it was the first uh, campaign or even scenario that uh, I read where it did not present cultists in the typical, stereotypical, I just said that word twice, uh, Call of Cthulhu, you know, pastiche of where they're all in robes and they've got curved daggers and they're gonna go sacrifice people. Um, and the second point I wanna make is no matter how big and how involved a campaign is, don't be afraid to edit it yourself to suit what's going on at the table. Like I, I have taken out entire chunks of campaigns because for whatever reason, I felt that it was not going to work. Um, I'll use Orient Express as an example. There's an entire Dreamlands chapter that I pulled out entirely because I could tell that if I, if I ran that, it was going to really kill the pace of what was going on up to that point. And that's a good point to take away. You know, these campaigns are there for you to adapt for your players because you know your players best, you know what they're going to enjoy. They are a framework, they are a guidebook, they are not a railroad, except for Horror and Your Express. I'm not going to start a big debate on this, I'm just going to throw in the line. You know, all know that every role playing game is a railroad, don't you? Secretly, it is. It's not, you know, it's got a very bad press, but they are all railroads. 
the end. And it's okay. <laughs> Railroading is not a bad thing. Yes. As long as I have the illusion of choice. <laughs> <laughs> If you'd like to put your hands up, I will make a point at people if I can see them. Ah, Cameron, I can see you hiding at the back. Okay. Um, I was wondering when uh, was running some of the larger campaigns like Mastercard, uh, Proza, or Oral Express, when you first opened, they seemed really daunting because of all the information that's thrown at the keeper. I was just wondering if you guys had any advice on like kind of tackling. Run like 10 one shots and really get your, your keeper game solid before you attempt your first campaign. I, I'm going to throw in um, you only need to know what you need to know for the play session you're about to do. Uh, you know, masks. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I advise you to read it through maybe once or twice. You know, read it through once, read it straight through, get it, get it in your head, kind of a rough idea of it. Read it through a second time, making a few notes or use some post its or, you know, like I'll burn later, but you can actually write in books too, which is what I do. I can underline things, and, and that's why I kind of, you know, one. And then when I actually then get to run in it, I, I just, you know, I look at what, you know, we're in Egypt. What are, what are they going to, what are, I know my players, how long, what they're actually going to do. Are they going to spend an hour shopping and chatting? Okay, so I don't need to worry about prepping for that. What are they actually going to do? I can then just read ahead. I've, got, I've already got a sense of what the chapter is, what, you know, what the main strands are, but I, I just prepare for what I'm about to run. And it's like, you know, half hours reading. And then, you know, I, I would say this, try and structure the chapters in the fact that you can just follow them as you run them. That's what I do. I don't, I don't do any massive prep. But it, you know, again, I'm a more experienced keeper, I guess, so you can do it more naturally. You know, so obviously right, but you know, the more experience you get, just running things generally is going to help. But don't be, you know, you haven't got to memorize all this stuff. It's written down. That's why it's written down. You know, just use, use posters and markers. This is the bit you actually want. You, you, I mean, guess, I, when you I, when guess you're an experienced keeper. You said you don't remember how many times you run the horror in the Orange Express, and you guess you're an experienced To give you an example, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, when I ran it, uh, when my prep work was a pencil, and I put a line through about 60 pages because it was the purpose information I didn't need to run it. I, I read it once, I kind of got it, but then I understood that a lot of it was background stuff that actually wasn't pertinent to the actual play of that session. I just put a line through it, so I, I could ignore when I when I could just go past the page. I didn't need, to, I didn't need that information during that session. If I'm crying, it's probably because I know that was my information. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll second what uh, Mike just advised about don't, don't, don't try to force yourself to memorize all 666 pages of Master and uh, Athletep. It's just impossible. Um, if you can give the whole thing a read once, that's awesome, um, but you don't need to. You can kind of just skim and try to get an overall uh, feel for what the campaign is about, the major plot points and so on, and then for your preparation for your next session or two, just read that one chapter or that, that one section of the campaign, because you're, as I've found countless times through experience, your players will not go through as much as you think 
you're going to in that session. So therefore you're actually more prepared for the next one and then you can keep on reading a little bit further and keep ahead of them um, until your players go off and do something completely unexpected and, and ruin all the prep that you've done for the last several hours. I was going to say, mine usually do that pretty much in the first 10 minutes. So, yeah, you guys are, you guys appear to have like nice players. <laughs> oh, oh no, Because oh, no. I've, I've got a pair with PhDs and, and um, they've been to Antarctica and they've been to, to Egypt. So, it, <laughs> well, one of the well, things actually. when we go when we go to Egypt and we, when we go to Antarctica, I'm going to, to I'm going to ask them. Okay, if I am wrong about stuff, go ahead and tell me, and I will adjust because I trust my players. Believe it or not, d despite despite my previous comment, um, and we're building this together, so I don't want to have something that's going to like sit and rankle with the players, like, well, that's not how it works. Like, well, okay, let's discuss that. I have a quick anecdote on that, on, on playing with experts. I ran an adventure uh, where one of the pre-gens was a member of Homeland, Department of Homeland Security, and one of my friends had a friend who wanted to play, and he was an active agent for Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> And he looked at the character sheets and he said, oh, the Glock 17, I missed those. We switched to the Glock 15 about three years ago. And he said, can I take point? Can I run this like a real op? And he said, yes, okay. He said, first thing we do when we get to town, we're going to check into the crappiest Best Western because we have no budget. Uh, and at the very end of the scenario, I asked him, so how did I do? And he said, well, you did really, really good, but there's just two things wrong. One, we would have never gotten a warrant that fast. That guy would have gone away. There would have been a broken fax machine somewhere, and we still would have been waiting for a warrant. And two, there's no way in hell after we describe, after we saved the world from a zombie outbreak, there's no way in hell they would have given us a week off. We'd have been back at work fucking Monday. <laughs> and I was so sad. <laughs> Player death. <laughs> um, you know, my my players have in in virtually all of my campaigns, all they've all been warned that death is uh, that death is a possibility. So the majority of them have always like have a concept for a backup character, and some of the more creative ones have layers of. So, so they're using essentially their their characters as a blade of armor before they get to the concept that they really want to keep. Um, I'll use mat or not masks, but uh, Orient Express again uh, as a way to answer your question. Uh, one of the great things that they I, I know actually this is in both uh, editions. There are uh, some really cool NPCs that have been provided. 
uh, to flesh out the passengers on the Orient Express. Um, and longer campaigns will give you the opportunity and the players the opportunity to form relationships and bonds with those if, if you, you know, present them well. And that happened during the course of my campaign um, to the extent that I had uh, one player, his, his first character um, was a prince from Rock, I think, and he had a, a bodyguard with him. Well, his main character, the prince, got grievously wounded and had to be taken off the, the train. Um, and so he started playing his bodyguard instead. Well, that bodyguard formed a relationship with one of the NPCs and their bond and, and through the gameplay became so strong that when uh, the bodyguard also got grievously injured, he, the player, then took the mantle of the NPC that his second investigator was forming a relationship with. So that's all to say that one way of dealing with that is to allow the players to form bonds and relationships and connections with other NPCs that you can develop during the course of the campaign. And that will feel more natural than just dropping in uh, Stabby McStabber as my sixth player in Massive Nyarlathotep because I burned through my first five. It's like clones and paranoia. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give you the next evolution of that of that whole concept, okay. which is what we, we've started doing. Um, if there's no bond, if there's no lineage to that character and that character dies in the campaign, uh, we select, we random, we don't randomly select, we select an NPC that's in the area who's witnessed the crime or, or some such nonsense that says, okay, now you're playing him. Um, we had one that they, uh, they rescued a, 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 a madhouse attendant, you know, who was like being held in a closet after, and their main character died and says, well, this guy's here. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to roll him up? He said, yeah, I'll roll that guy up. But that guy, he was in the narrative already just as an NPC. The player had no idea, oh, I guess I'm playing, you know, a psychiatric ward guy. And he played that guy for like seven more games. It became his main character. But he never had any intention, but it made sense because he was there. And it felt very organic. And it, and it felt extremely yeah. organic because none of us knew what we were doing. We just... <laughs> yeah, I mean, this things to consider. There's the organic approach, which is the, the fallback natural option that most games tend to do. Is there an NPC? Is there somebody related to the, you know, in connection to the PC? It's a natural progression, probably. The organic approach. The, the other approach is, depending on the, depending on the campaign setup, is the investigator organization. You know, is it so, uh, Two-Headed Serpent uses this approach, the Caduceus organization, all the PCs are members, why they are in the campaign. And so when one dies or, or is removed, uh, the organization will send in a replacement. And, and that gives the player more agency, rather than being you know, landed with, you have to play the, 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 the guy who stood there on the train because he's in the scenario scene. Uh, it allows the player to kind of bring in a new character that's of their design, who believe organically part of the organization they're in. So that's the other approach. Um, and it, it, it all depends in terms of the, uh, the narrative uh, style of the campaign. You know, uh, Matt's uh, Charlotte and Joseph Arth, clearly, the Order of the Silver Twilight is a massive, clearly, a investigator organization. It's what it should be. 
it's a collection of people who are interested in weird stuff. So, and so it, it kind of, what it needs to do is kind of be retrofitted to be like the Caduceus organization in Two Headed Serpent, where the players at some point will stop and go, hang on a minute, are we the bad guys? <laughs> <laughs> Which can be a great moment in the campaign. Um, so, I, you know, it's kind of looking at how, how the campaigns are structured and set up will often give you the answer to how um, you can bring in replacement PCs, either organically, we can always bring them in organically, but you may have other options, as in you know, investigative organizations and so on, to, you know, to bring in as well. Or even something like the Wentworth Club in Curse of Nineveh, where it's just this, it's not a gentleman's club even, it's just a, a, an adventurous, adventurous club. club, yeah, and so, you could just make up on the spot. Well, you've seen this one person at the uh, at the initial party, and he seems to be interested in what you fellows are doing, and you're a person down. So, and it was, it was something that we did with masks, wasn't it? it was the uh, the whole Jackson the Liars basically get a notebook of all the useful people he'd ever met. <laughs> so, because you have a contact who's basically giving you the funds to go do all this nonsense, you know, if someone died, it's a case of. We need X. Oh yeah, no, I've got, you know, um, yeah, in the Jackson's notebook, there's this person. Oh, he's near you. I'll send him over. You know, so, you know, there's all sorts of ways that you can, you can help to do that. Right. Gentlemen, right at the very back there, please. Take the you. You're not here you at all. That's John Candelino, everyone. The guy who said, he's you came up earlier in the campaign. You came up earlier in this discussion, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll be available. <laughs> Whenever you need me there, I'll be there. Okay, so, Mike. Yeah, just, I, 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 to be honest, I didn't catch all of that. What was the first question? The question was, where do we see campaigns going in 10 to 20 years? time and how do you think technology is going to affect that? Uh, okay, that's a really easy answer. They're just going to get better and they're going to use more technology. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, I mean seriously, the evolution of game design is a continuous process. So clearly we are, we are the things we don't yet know we don't know that will come and we will just it, that would just become a natural part in terms of our, how we write, how we structure things, how, because ultimately what we're all striving for is how to basically implant 666 pages of maths campaign in a GM's head without them having to do too much work. That's what we all strive for, isn't it? Because I mean, that's the ideal. You can just plug your USB in your head and you now know it all. You don't have to do any prep work. Uh, maybe that's the future. But, um, uh, but in terms of, you know, that kind of thing, so game design will just continue to evolve. It clearly will always, just like everything else in, in you know, society and life. However, and technology, again, is it's, it's making things more accessible, uh, 
make, you know, breaking down barriers, um, making things more uh, immersive and um, enjoyable. You know, so you know, 20 years ago, the fact we, you know, we could, we had to actually cut out a bit of paper and photocopy it, and that, that was your play handout. That you know, and some people, you know, might have had a color color printer, so it looked a bit better. Now we can share them online. We can share them. We can be playing the game around the world. You know that we just couldn't do 20 years ago. Um, and so already it's breaking down barriers. It's bringing people together, and we're having a better kind of play experience. That can only, in theory, only get better. Um, you know, I, if I knew what the technology was that was coming, I'd, I'd not be signing up. Quite rich, I imagine. So I, I'm a bit dumb. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I imagine it's going to be good. Hopefully. Uh, I think they're going to get more uh, diverse and inclusive. I mean, we've made strides towards that, but we've got a long way to go still. I think there's going to be more varieties of campaigns. Uh, and I think handouts and props are going to get even more cool than they already have. Uh, I think the short answer is wherever you guys want it to go. You are ultimately the driving force of the evolution of campaigns. You're the consumer. Uh, publishers are going to produce things to move product. You are the people buying the product. We're going to try and give you what you want so we can keep you happy and we can stay in business. So we're asking you, you know, where do you want us to go? Because that's where we're going to go. John, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I think they're just going to get more awesome and weirder. So time for one more question. and um, that. You're yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a couple things. First of all, thank you so much for adjusting the flowchart at the beginning of Massacre Lockdown. <laughs> first time I ran it, I ran it without the flowchart. Super annoying, I had to chart it out myself. But the second time through, I ran this edition version, and it was much easier. Um, the second thing is, I want to go the opposite direction and take your brain on this. What is something you don't like seeing a campaign, things that are not the great campaigns, things that you do you think would be the opposite of the great campaigns. John? Something that's blatantly imitative. Um, years, decades, okay, ago there was um, a, a very Indiana Jones campaign. It was like, uh, I don't remember what it was. But it was it was clearly trying to be something, and it kind of was forcing play in a particular direction. And I think great campaigns give you the freedom to play it the way you want to, and not just pulp versus um, <clears throat> pulp versus classic. But do you, do you want this to be serious? Do you want to be you know just kind of goof, goofing around the ta at the table? Do you want and a great campaign has to welcome all types of characters uh, so that anyone can walk in and enjoy it and be part of it. I think that's very important. Um, not having a campaign turn into a monster of the week. Um, Day of the Beast really suffered from that. Um, that is one of my least favorite campaigns that I've run because but it had a robot. I know it had a robot. There are some awesome things about it. Um, it takes place partly in the Bay Area, which is where I'm from. But it it, it it's almost Derlethian in how many 
yeah, that it just throws at the at the investigators, and after a while, it became kind of a joke. So, yeah, that would be my answer to that. I think I've already commented enough on what I think a, a bad campaign, the bad elements of a campaign is. So I won't take up any time. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure what more I can add other than I think for me the fundamental issue with some um, older campaigns and you know, names that have just been mentioned, so forgive them, is the disjointed nature of them. To really, even even if today you decide as a, a team of writers to pull a campaign, you'll go, you'll have that initial meeting and you'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll write the London chapter, I'll write the you know, Beirut chapter, or whatever it is. That's cool. And you go and you write your scenario. Someone still has to glue them all together. Someone's got to make sure. Really good editor. Yeah. yeah. Really good editor. Well, it, it's, it's, it's not just editing, it's development. It, it's actually, there's actually a creative writing aspect to this as well. Someone has got to kind of take the, the overarching creative vision to pull it together. Uh, and then, it, and then it, I think it gets edited. Um, I don't think it's enough to just sew the scenes together. You've got to actually inject copy into to make it actually work as opposed to oh, so an in progress project manager coupled with a yes, strong manager. I agree. That, and I think that makes you a strong a much more cohesive campaign. That's for me the fundamental. We've we've been thinking a lot about how to create an epic campaign. So um, yeah. Um, I think basically anything really that reinforces stereotypes that uh, are outdated, you know, that's that's a single campaign fast if I find that in anything. Because we've kind of finished answering the question, and that was the last question. I'm just going to like talk for two seconds about two things. Well, one might let you, seeing as it's you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One one is to say, when we mention campaigns, um, because of the history of them in terms of what they're about, we do tend to think of the kind of the very grand, world-spanning kind of stuff, and, and that's great. Um, and we have some, yeah, we've all had some fantastic experiences doing that. Beyond the Mountain Madness is, is, is was, was kind of one of the first to actually just focus down and go. Actually, this all okay. Admittedly. Yeah, there's a, there is a travel and it is multi, you know, there are multiple, but then actually that's all kind of precursor. You know, we all know the campaign really starts when you, you first start scrunching on the Antarctic on the ice. Ice. Yeah. And that's really the focus of the campaign. And so um, I'm, you know, because we've got lots of world spanning campaigns, so I can, you know, probably listen to them all now. But I'm really interested in news stories because, you know, we could put out another world spanning campaign, but you've already got a lot of them. So I'm interested in that kind of focusing down. And so you know, the, the Dead Within, which, you know, again, we've not published yet, we're still working on it, but we have actually live playtested it on YouTube. Please go and have a look at it. Um, it's a focus down one. So it's, it's set in one country, one time, and, it's, and, and, and the whole campaign is, is, is developed. But actually, character death is really unlikely, maybe towards the very end, but actually it's about the character arcs, that's actually what the campaign is about. So if you are the kind of group that shuns away from you know, combat-orientated scenarios, like somebody like Matt Sanderson from The Good Friends, just doesn't like doing combats. It's that, you know, we're trying to just do it, you know, here's a, here's a different way to do it, basically. So I think, you know, I'm just trying to say that different styles of campaign is something to think about if you're thinking about developing them yourselves. 
Um, and the other, the other point I wanted to get is, is we've got a great, you've come to a seminar talk about campaigns, so we could just plug some, because I know Oscar needs to plug something and, and in a second, but to, before he starts, because he's going to like steal the biscuit here, um, I, I'm just going to say, uh, we've, got, um, we've got a bunch of new campaigns, we've got uh, a new pulp campaign, we've got the Dead Within, as I mentioned, and really excited with what's going to come first. You know that strange campaign that's like a massive sandbox, it's called Arkham. We've got that coming out, and, and that's going to allow you to tell, to design the campaign, the, you know, set here, basically. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to that, but I wanted to give Oscar a bit of space because come the eyes of March, things are happening, yeah? Yes. Um, we've just, well, my company is going to be launching a Kickstarter and uh, ending on the Ides of March, so from the Feast of Paterfamilias in it, uh, until the Ides of March. We are uh, updating the legacy of Arius Lurko for 7th edition, and we are adding a 5th chapter set in Hispania, where the, where the players are seeking a, a Godslayer weapon, a, a legendary weapon that's been handed down <coughs> to the days of the Republic to help them in their struggle against Ecorn, which was playtested by some of the people uh, in this room uh, just the other day. Um, so yeah, you know, please, uh, if you're a Cthulhu Invictus fan, uh, check it out. If you're not a Cthulhu Invictus plan, fan, please become one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Right, well, I would like to then um, thank our panellists. We really need to get out so we can let the next lot in. Yep. Um, so if you would join me in thanking the panellists and thank you for <laughs>